Skype doesn't ring anymore on my computer. Maybe you should get a new computer. Yeah, your Mac Pro is probably broken. Mm, I'm, I'm going to blame Skype. Mm, I think it's Mac Pro. We should do some quick follow-up with regard to, what's the official name for it? Voice memos or voice messages, whatever it is that Marco and I were running into. Raise to listen. Yeah, well, the, the thing that we solved by Raise to listen, maybe. Uh, I will answer that I have not seen one of those misfires with the, you know, speak a text message to somebody. I've not seen one of those since you and I had the simultaneous epiphany and invention of, of turning off Raise to listen, Raise to wake, whatever it is. How's listen. that been for you? Yeah, same thing. Race to wake, I still use. Uh, Race to listen is what we turned off in the messages uh, preferences. And yeah, I too have had no accidental doo-doo, uh, you know, as I'm putting my phone in my pocket mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. I end up sending or or half sending or trying to send a, a very long audio message of my pocket, basically. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I've been very happy with that so far. I wonder if they picked the wrong defaults on this one then, because I, I understand the feature. I think I even remember it being demoed, and I understand the utility of it, especially if you frequently need to like fire off a text message, but you don't have time to type it, so you just want to like bring it to your face, talk, and put it down, right? But it, like the unexpected consequences of enabling that feature that were obscure enough that it took you guys a while to figure it out, and like it's it makes the phone seem like it's broken. You want to bring Daisy in? She seems to have an opinion. <laughs> yes, yeah, seriously. She's got an opinion about people walking past our house. <laughs> What's been going on with her? I haven't heard an update on Rectifs in a while. Uh, I mean, it's springtime, so the windows are open on the house, and uh, there's more people walking by on the sidewalk all the time, and there's more interesting smells out there, and there are birds and squirrels, and so she's going a little crazy. And uh, we wanted to point out that Layers is uh, – t- the tickets for Layers are available. This is a three-day conference that's during WWDC. A lot of people um, seem to have been a, a come to the opinion that Layers is strictly a designer conference. And although design is a heavy part of Layers, it is not at all a designer-only conference. Um, I went – uh, what was it, 2016, I believe. And the only reason I'm not going this year is because it's – it's more appropriate for work anyway if I go to WWDC. But Layers is phenomenal. Uh, the speakers are always great and diverse. The talks are always phenomenal. They are oftentimes about stuff that I would never think I would find interesting and then I'm absolutely fascinated and riveted by them. And so you should definitely, if you're going to be in the area of San Jose, if you like delicious snacks and or if you like <laughs> both in the food in the food sense or in the brain sense, if you want a snack for your brain, go to layers it's good stuff because marco you've been to at least one in the past right yeah i've been to two actually it's funny the one you went to was the one i didn't go to <laughs> but I went, I went to the one i think one year before that and and one and the year after that and they were great uh, i you know it's run by our friend jesse char who does lots of wonderful things uh, and elaine pow uh they're, they're it's they're the partnership that they they put on this great conference every year and it's great not only if you're a designer, but if you are, you know, a single person product person where you need to c- concern yourself with such things, uh, or if you just like cool stuff. And so, you know, not only do they have great talks, they really are great on the diversity front, uh, both of people and, and of ideas, which is really nice. And usually they get really, really talented speakers as well. Um, and also, it is just such an incredibly fun conference because Jesse and Elaine, the organizers, are so not only are they very fun people themselves, but they know what's fun. 
and they know how they know what people who go to conferences need and what you don't even realize you need but you really do need and so like you go there and like the, you know the snacks are amazing the coffee is amazing they throw the best parties and like this wonderful after party like it's just it's so much fun and they you know they build in like fun and socializing into the schedule as well so you're not just like sitting at you know sitting in a chair all day it's just a great conference it's really fun and if you're going to be in san jose I highly suggest you check out Layers. Yeah, it's really, really good. And if Marco says the coffee is amazing, you know that it's going to blow your freaking mind. It actually is amazing coffee. Like, you know I wouldn't say that lightly, but it actually is amazing <laughs> coffee. Indeed. And, you know, the way that I knew that they really were not f***ing around was that the first, or the only time I went, I should say, is that uh, what they had like a... Um, I don't want to call it a snack table because it was it wasn't for snacks at the time. It was like a, almost like a refreshments table, but they had like mints and aspirin for those of us who yeah, stayed out too late they drinking. They had like Tylenol and, for hangovers. Yeah. <laughs> it was and, great. And, uh, and, uh, and they also had like these little, I don't know how to describe them, but like one-time use, no water required toothbrushes in case you needed to freshen up a little bit. Maybe you just rolled in from the bar directly to Layers. So uh, Layers is a truly great conference. And I, I, t- I don't recall how much tickets are off the top of my head, but I, I remember it being very, very, very affordable, especially compared to WWDC. So... If you are at all interested and you will be in San Jose or could be in San Jose, the fir- I think it's the first three days of WWDC. Yeah, I believe it's I Monday, check. Tuesday, Wednesday usually. And yeah. yeah, it's great. And yeah, the tickets are it's like between an iPad mini and an iPad Pro somewhere in that range. <laughs> so anyway, the, the URL is layers.is. And again, I cannot recommend it enough. Don't let don't let the, anyone scare you. I mean, I could see how at a glance you could look at their website and say, oh, this is for designers. But but that's not at all what this website is trying to say. And and I think that that the initial maybe it was the first year it was very design heavy. But even if it's about design, in my experience, it's about the sort of design that everyone cares about. You know, it's not about, uh, you know, specifically UI design for a specific mobile app or anything like that, or usually anyway. It's just it's just about all sorts of interesting and cool stuff. And and it seems like not unlike Singleton from years past, it the the the, the marching orders for speakers are basically, hey, talk about something cool. That's about it. It's also talk about I, something cool. I have to point out too, like if you happen to be at WBC in San Jose last year, if you happen to notice as you're walking out of the convention center that next door was this outdoor patio full of people who looked like they were having a lot more fun than you, <laughs> that was layers. Indeed. Like, and that happened. Like, that was like, like they would have like these amazing snacks brought in, and everyone's hanging out outside and having fun, and like, and then the, you know the developers are like slogging out with their box lunches. Like, that's like yep. it was the like the more fun looking party next door <laughs> it's so, tr- so i swear i swear on everything i consider holy i i swear that one time i was walking to the conference and i passed this outdoor area just like you described and i'm like wow people are having a lot of fun out there just like you described what the hell is going on oh it's layers okay that makes sense yeah like like you like <laughs> everybody who walked past that kind of wish they were there instead so you can be there <laughs> by going to layers yeah, indeed. Anyway, so we'll let this go. But layers.is, uh, Jesse and Elaine are wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people, and they find wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people to uh, to to speak at their at their conference. So it's really, really great. So today there was a very interesting piece in I I, I believe it's pronounced Hodinki or is it Hodinki? Hodinki. I'm, I'm genuinely asking. Hodinki. Okay. I can't believe um, this is like my worlds are colliding. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So. 
Hodenki is, and jump in when you're ready, Marco, is a kind of online periodical website with that's that's about watches. I, I presume mostly high-end watches, or is that unfair? Pretty much exclusively high-end watches. Um, okay, there you go. Yeah, so Hodinkee is, is like the daring fireball or tech crunch of the watch world. And and the person who wrote this, Ben Clymer, is either the founder or the head person now. Uh, so anyway, so there was an article. I guess they do like a ma- a literal magazine, which is in print, question mark? Is that true? I, they or, this, is, this is volume two. Like they literally just started uh-huh. doing this. But I mm. guess this is also on the web. I don't know. I don't get the print magazine. I just read their site in a feed reader. Suffice to say, they they ended up doing an, an interview with Johnny Ive, which is obviously relevant to all three of us, even if the rest of the website is not. And so there was an interview with Johnny Ive, mostly, of course, about wristwatches and kind of how did the Apple Watch come to be? Uh, how you know what does Johnny consider important? And I have several poll quotes that that I'm happy to go through uh, in a minute, but perhaps you know we should give some overall impressions of the article. I didn't think. It was particularly well-written, but it did not strike me as egregiously poorly written. I think I'm the only one that feels that way because several <laughs> people I've spoken to, not just you guys, said it was very poorly written. Uh, I thought it was fine. I do feel like this is a world I'm not used to because – and I, I, I didn't call out examples of this, but it was there – were, there were very clear descriptions – about very many expensive, tangible things that were not limited to wristwatches. And I can't think of a specific example, but like clothes were described with excruciating detail. It, it was like a, it's like Sound and Vision magazine, where the magazine is funded by uh, mentioning like, you know, the latest movie on DVD or whatever. Right. So when they're mm-hmm. reviewing a DVD player, they have to say, I was watching, you know, Captain America and I could see the blue of Captain's, you know, shield and blah, blah, blah. Like it's a paid, you know, product placement essentially. And that's how they pay for this stuff. Only I think this, that's not what this was. It's just that this person couldn't help but saying, and the people came in and they were dressed in this and they were wearing these expensive boots by these brands. And you could tell they weren't just regular PR people. They were Apple PR people. It's like, oh, someone kill oh, here me. You go, here you go. Yep. <laughs> I was greeted by a team unlike any other in Silicon Valley. They're veterans of places like GQ and Harper's Bazaar and they've studied at the Sarbonne and served in the White House. They're not dressed ostentatiously, but you know those understated boots must be St. Laurent, or however you pronounce it, or maybe Bottega Veneta. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, too. It's a subtle reminder that Apple isn't just a tech company. It's potentially the greatest luxury brand in the world. Like, that just seems so gross to me. And maybe it's just that I'm not used to it. Maybe it's a Casey problem, but it just made me feel gross. No, you know what? It's not a Casey problem. Like, I read this site. I like watches. I like Apple. I found this article insufferable. Like, it was just totally insufferable. And again, I read their site all the time. But this was way... I mean, in in every possible horrible sense of the word, it was just like masturbatory. It was just like just disgu- <laughs> it was like it was like a high school it's English actually, student right, right. finally finally discovered the thesaurus feature, and it's oh god, it was so bad. And, and see, it wasn't it, I it wasn't the mechanics of the writing; it was the choice. It was the choice to say what I'm going to write here is I'm going to write like several hundred words about every aspect of my personal so it's sort of like gonzo journalism but with less gonzo like every aspect of leading up to uh this interview with my thoughts and feelings about how it was going and what i think about everything that i see and it's just like look people you have an interview with johnny ive all people want to see is the interview with johnny ive 
the 600 words of your personal experience leading up to that and all your opinions about everyone you see and all the things they own and all the, what, how you feel about things you own and how you feel about things you might have owned and how it's just like, oh, my God, no one is reading for that. And like and that's a choice. And, you know, I don't think like it wasn't badly written at the micro level. The choice to do to take, you know, this very high profile interview with a person who doesn't give a, I don't know how high profile they are compared to like their watch people they interview, but Johnny Ive doesn't give a lot of interviews, period, right? He's not all over the news all the time. He doesn't talk much in public. Get to the interview. So I totally disagree with that choice. And then when you get to the interview, the, the little italic sort of thoughts put in between the, the questions and the answers. Oh, that's painful. painful. No, it was, just, it, was kill, it was just killing me killing me oh god yeah it was this whole thing it's i think this this makes nobody look good i mean you know i I think a lot of it was padded and fluffed up because this is a you know a luxury site that is trying to expand into this long form magazine format um and so obviously it was puffed up for that i think also it it was fairly clear that he didn't have a lot of time with Johnny. It seemed like I'm guessing based on the uh, the amount of questions and answers actually in this versus the amount of fluff in this. I'm guessing he had like 10 minutes with him. It, it yeah. seemed like it was a really, you know, short interview. I mean, it could have been it could have been 30 minutes. Like I, I you know, Johnny gives good substantive answers in his way to questions that could have been answered in an even more short manner. So I bet it was at least a half an hour interview plus a half an hour photo shoot afterwards. Like you know, I this this is a surprising, surprising amount of interaction for a watch site. I would, you know, I, I wouldn't have guessed unless Johnny Ive is a fan of the site and like Marco reads it as well or something. Yeah, I don't. I, I just, I think the whole thing, it, like, no one looks good from this. I don't know who they're trying to relate to. Half the people, at least, who read this are going to be people who have never heard of Hodinky who are reading the Apple News, right? So to be bragging about how you really wish the Apple Watch was available in solid platinum with a solid platinum bracelet, um, and and that you, which by the way, that would probably cost like seventy five thousand um, dollars, or to you know, it's it's a shame that you you missed out on your bid for Steve Jobs' old Seiko watch that he wore once in a photo shoot, and the winning bidder was forty two thousand. You were the the second you know you were the, the second place bidder, like that is just so incredibly alienating and. It it doesn't make anybody look good. It's just it's just showing off. Uh, just it's just throwing out money numbers that like I feel like in in the luxury world, a lot of luxury products like you know fancy cars, fancy jewelry, a lot of these things are very expensive. It's just incredibly tasteless to just be talking about numbers out like out there like that to just kind of be be bragging about how much you spent on things or how much you you can or want to spend on such things like that. That's just it's not a it's not a good look. And even for a watch site that is read by people like, you know, the watches they cover on the site in, you know, in the news probably have an average price of about $10,000. So, you know, they don't cover cheap things. But even for their audience, not to mention the audience that this piece was likely to receive because it's about a high profile Apple person, it's just incredibly off-putting and alienating to be bragging so much about incredibly needlessly expensive uh purchases or wishes and that didn't add anything to the article at all yeah and then i think and i think johnny ive didn't come out looking that great on this either i don't think he gained anything from this uh, i i think you know he, he had his typical kind of like you know johnny in space kind of philosophy statements where it sounds kind of interesting until you try to parse what he said and realize he didn't say much of anything and then i thought the way he referred to and talked about other watch brands was really condescending and and 
it, like it was a little subtle, but if you look at the way he worded things, it was incredibly condescending and arrogant. Uh, and and I don't I don't think that came off as a good look either. I didn't personally get that impression about what Johnny said, but the rest of what you said I agree with. This almost feels like, uh, and I don't I don't know anything about Benjamin Clymer, but this feels like one of the rich kids of Instagram grew up and actually sort of made a living for himself. But you can't change the fact that he's one of those rich assholes from Instagram. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just, uh, I don't know. It just feels gross. Now, that being said, and even though I completely agree with what you were saying about how tacky it is to talk about, oh, well, I lost that bid and it was one for $42,000, thus implying he was willing to spend $30,000 on a watch. Um, do you feel like that's maybe just the 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 Americans in us, you know how like it's very taboo in America to talk about how much you make where I've heard in other countries that's far less the case. Do you think that's what this is or do you think it's just freaking gross or both? I, I mean, there's probably a little bit of that in it, but I, I don't think that's all this is. I mean, I, I think this was just, you know, really overindulgent, alienating writing. Yeah, I don't think it was the money. I think it was the the format that the choice to, to you know, like if someone who's reading this article is not interested in what the person who's writing the article, the every detail of their lead up to the interview, they just want to get to the interview. And speaking of the interview, I don't, I, this is the impression I came in with. I've, I've read I think probably every interview with Johnny Ive. I've read the recent Johnny Ive book by Leander Caney, I think, which I thought was a pretty good book about Johnny Ive and gives lots of, lots of insight into his character that I didn't have before. Um, and my impression of him in this interview was he was his normal, thoughtful, you know, slightly Johnny Ive in space kind of, uh, person that we always expect him to be um and that he actually really admires and is into non-apple watches um but that he also really likes the apple watch surprise uh i didn't get anything that was making me think that he was looking down on other watches if anything i he, he revealed himself to be a bit of a you know, watch fanboy, regular watch fanboy, and uh, I thought I thought he kind of uh, that was the impression I'm getting of him because I didn't know how 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 into watches is Johnny Ive, and in this interview I'm like, oh, he's actually more into watches than I would have thought he was, um, and I didn't think he was crapping on other watches or he's he's not he's not a he's certainly not a braggart, and I don't think he's particularly aggressively arrogant. Um, he you know uh, like the, so. Casey pulled out a bunch of pull quotes here, and I can see how you might read one of these uncharitably and come away with the impression that he's crapping on other watches. But this this is on the uh, Apple Watch versus mechanical watches. He said, sometimes you'll wear an Apple Watch for outright utility, and other times you'll wear something else for nostalgia and affection. And it's like, oh, so, so if you want utility, you have to wear an Apple Watch, but the only reason you'd wear some other watches is nostalgia and affection? That's I, I don't read it that way. I read it as he really likes mechanical watches and it's nostalgia for him because now he wears the Apple watch all the time because utility wise, it it does a ton more stuff. Even if you could make the argument that telling time wise, it has less utility than mechanical watch. Um, but affection that, that he really does have an affection for mechanical watches and that he understood what he was competing against because he himself is one of those rich people who buys really expensive watches and cares about them. Uh, and his friends all design them and he's super into them or whatever. I think that he was describing a reasonable, you know, way to deal with the dichotomy between your computer watch and your non-computer watch. So I don't, I don't know. I didn't, 
I didn't, uh, like I said, when we talked about this earlier in Slack, I came away from this article really disliking the the writer of the article and the choices he made and basically having the same opinion, Johnny, as I've always had. I didn't, I don't think he came off badly in this article at all. Here's, I, I think my, my main point about like the condescension and, and, you know, of him towards the other watch brands. So that, that quote you said, you know, maybe you'd wear another watch for nostalgia or affection. Like that's a big thing, right? And you, you know, you covered that. Also, there was one uh, where he says, um, I have so much respect for many of those other brands, dash Rolex, Omega, because there is remarkable longevity combined with such an obvious and clear understanding of their own unique identity, it's rare but inspiring when you see the humble self-assurance of a company that ignores short-term market pressures to pursue their own path. That, to me, kind of... Okay, so the combination of that, along with the, like, maybe we're a mechanical for nostalgia or affection, the combination of those things, to me, says... Look at these quaint little companies making these quaint little watches. They're not doing the correct thing. We're doing the correct thing that the market is saying that they want. They're they're humble and they're they're pushing their no, own path no. because That's... it's kind of based on based on an assumption that to not have an Apple Watch is inherently worse and that the reasons that you would either choose to not wear one or that you as a watchmaker would choose not to make a smartwatch are, are not out of merit they're not out of like like what whatever you are making as as a non-smartwatch or wearing as a non-smartwatch is just worse and you're just doing it for irrational reasons like like tradition or nostalgia or affection totally ignoring the possibility that maybe just maybe there are ways in which other watches are better than the apple watch so i think you've got a chip on your watch shoulder i think that's I was the absolute, say the absolutely the wrong read on that here's a chip on my wrist john get it right come on watch shoulder <laughs> Here, here's what i think the rare read on that is he he is making a favorable comparison a backhanded favorable comparison between apple and those watchmakers that he admires what he's basically saying is by the way he has the most boring taste in the world like, like apple nudge nudge wink wink these other companies have a clear sense of identity and and think long term and don't worry about they they do the right thing and they have an identity and they're all about longevity and the long term and not about what i need to do next quarter and not about chasing fads and he didn't mention apple but he's i think that 100 percent was saying these companies i admire because these companies like us have this philosophy to be sort of long-term secure in their own identities humble he's always saying his design group is humble and they came at their the product humble like basically everything he says yeah, the nice thing he really says humble. about these things he's also saying about apple so i think he really does admire those companies for exactly the reasons he says because that's the reason he admires his company because he thinks he's doing all those same things well i guess you and i interpreted this article differently <laughs> I, I see, get I see what you're saying so we, can, we can ask him but oh yeah that that would that's likely <laughs> <laughs> hey, he went on this watch blog come on we can get him yeah all right you, you get on that <laughs> I'll, I'll grab him in the hallway at wwc he hangs out at those sessions i think oh yeah, yeah totally <laughs> these are just some quotes i thought that were interesting with regard to the apple watch johnny said i don't think there was a problem specifically it was more of an um, of a matter of optimization of opportunity and that seems to implicitly confirm what we all kind of suspected that that apple said hey we could put something on the wrist that'd be neat well what would you use it for i don't know 
but it'd be cool, right? And so it seems like uh, Apple Watch was one of the less opinionated pr- uh, products that Apple's come out with in recent years. And so far as they didn't really know what it was for. And if you, you know, obviously look back to, to the release and, and the announcement, it's pretty clear. But and we've talked about that, the three of us and many others as well. But I, I feel the way I read that anyway, was kind of a tacit confirmation that that is ex- exactly what happened. I, I think it, like to give more context to this, I think the question was like, what problem was the Apple Watch solving? which is a good question, uh, an expected question to come from like a traditional watch site, right? Because they're like, look, what's, what's wrong with watches? Why did you have to come here and make a different watch? What's wrong with watches how they've always been made? Like, what's wrong with all the things that we love? And Johnny, again, being a fan of those type of watches, is not going to say, well, here's what's wrong with the mechanical watches. They can't do this. They can't do that. Blah, blah, blah. Here's the, here's the problem they were solving. You have a problem with your mechanical watch, and we're here to solve it. And he says, no, that wasn't the, it at all. It was, you know in his typical obtuse way, a matter of optimization of opportunity, which is like, we've learned at Apple that, and I think he did this analogy somewhere else in the article, that taking computers from being, you know, he made the comparison with clocks, which I thought was very clever. Like clocks used to be one big clock tower in the middle of the, the square of the town, right? A giant thing that, you know, no one person owned, but it was like, hey, everyone can look up in the town square and see what time it is. And then eventually you get clocks in your house, but they're expensive and maybe you only have one clock for your entire house. Then eventually you got clocks in multiple rooms that eventually the clock is small enough that it's on your wrist. And at each stage of downsizing, uh, new opportunities. Like it's, it's an optimization of taking the clock tower and putting it all around your wrist. It's enabled by technology and there's opportunities. Like what, what does that enable? You know, how does it change your life? How does it change society, right? And similarly with computers going from mainframes to personal computers to phones down to all on your wrist, uh, that I thought was a good analogy and it made sense and it, it, it tracked with me of like what he was trying to say about, you know, we weren't trying to solve some sort of problem that we had like, oh, how can I live my life when I only have one clock in my house? I'll never know what time it is. Why do I need a clock on my wrist? It's so stupid, but it's an opportunity. It's a technological opportunity. And I don't think they needed to say, well, what problem are you solving in my daily life by putting this clock on my wrist or this clock in my pocket to go, you know, pocket watches or whatever. It's like, well, you don't quite realize until you have that thing, how it might change your life. And similarly for the Apple watch, how might it change your life to have a little computer on your wrist? I already have a little computer in my pocket. What, why do I need my wrist? What can it do differently? And there are opportunities. Um, and, and as Casey stated, maybe they thought that the world of opportunities was slightly bigger than it actually turned out to be, at least with current technology, but there were definitely opportunities and people do like their Apple watches. And it turns out, you know, fitness and notifications ended up being the two big opportunities that are sticky but i think that was a fairly good answer to a fairly good question despite the terrible lead up to this interview (laughs) not that we're bitter uh with regard to just designing new ideas johnny said things are exceptionally fragile as an idea entirely abstract but once there's an object between us, it's galvanizing. And to put a little more context in this, he was saying, you know, once they build a prototype, and not necessarily like a functional prototype, just like a, a, a an object, like think about when you're when you're designing a car and doing the like clay model or whatever it is. He was saying that you know it, you can just kind of talk around and around about things prior to that that model being in your hands, but the moment you see it and touch it, it's you know that's when the conversation really starts. And that's not surprising, but I just thought it was interesting. With regard to material science, and this was uh, the context here was talking about how there was the gold Apple Watch, now there's there's the ceramic Apple Watch, etc. Johnny said, we have now worked with ceramic and with gold, and our material sciences team now understands these fundamental attributes and properties in a way they didn't before. This will help shape future products and our understanding of what forms make sense. 
I don't think that this is any particularly strong clue for any particular any particular future product, but I just thought it was interesting. And again, it's like it's obvious, isn't it, that oh, now they know how to work with gold, and maybe they'll do that again in the future. Oh, now they know how to work with ceramic, and maybe they'll do that in the future. And certainly in the lead up to, I think, was it the iPhone 10 that we were going on and on about whether or not there would be ceramic, or some people were going on and on about whether or not it would be ceramic, at least in part. And so I just thought it was interesting, you know, him directly addressing the fact that that this could be in our future somewhere you never know gold mac pro confirmed yeah you heard it here first this uh, this i thought was the perhaps the biggest stretch of any answer that he gave because I, (laughs) i understand i understand what he was saying that you know it's good for a design group to learn about new materials but the utility of learning how to work with gold is very limited. <laughs> like, it's great. So you know how to make solid gold watches. Tell me how in any way that's going to apply to any other product in your lineup. I mean, maybe it'll apply to gold glasses frames in 2050. I don't know. But it's just, it's not particularly. Ceramic maybe has more applicability. I did also like the, the bit that he threw in, which I think was, you know, a, a brief glimpse into into the uh, the difficulty of being Johnny Ive, that it was fun to do a product that you didn't have to make in, in large quantities, talking uh, about the yeah. addition. Mm-hmm. Like, he's like, God, everything we make, we have to make like 10 million of them. It's nice to be able to make this gold thing that we have to make like 20 of them because nobody buys them, right? He, <laughs> obviously, he wouldn't give sales numbers, but that was, that was a nice uh, glimpse into like, oh, it's so much less stressful. Like, I don't, everything I do, I don't have to think, you know, uh, will this take an extra half a second during manufacturing, which multiplied out by the number we're going to make is an extra six months on the schedule or something. Right. <laughs> it's so true. I, I noticed that as well. Uh, and then my final poll quote, which I think might have been my favorite, uh, I will call this Johnny discovers the Internet. And he was he <laughs> yeah. was saying to the, he was saying to <laughs> the writer, this is you say to the, the, the Hodinky writer who uh, whose name I've already forgotten, uh, Benjamin. Ben Clymer, yeah. Uh, he said, uh, with regard to to Ben's review of one of the prior Apple Watches, this is now Johnny talking, that was the other thing that struck me about the feedback to your review, the vitriol from some of the commenters. It's not surprising, but it is unnecessary. Well, <laughs> yes, that's, that's unnecessary. That is accurate. Un- unnecessary. Thanks, Dad. It's unnecessary to criticize Apple. <laughs> it's unnecessary to be a jerk about it. I mean, but yeah. here's the, the thing I was most surprised about is that he, A, read the review and B, read the comments. All right, fine. You read the review. Maybe you read, because again, maybe he reads this website because it's apparently the website that people who like expensive watches read, right? Um, but then you read the comments? Like, don't read the comments, Johnny. Everyone knows that. <laughs> apparently not him. I mean, he's just like, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, it's not surprising. So it's not like he's shocked that people are mean on the internet. But his advice, it's unnecessary. Oh, thanks. Now that, now that they know it's unnecessary, I'm sure they'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> We are sponsored this week by Mac Weldon. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter code ATP at checkout. I can tell you a little secret. I've been wearing Mac Weldon underwear for every single show that we've recorded in the last year. Because I bought my first set of Mac Weldon stuff last year, about last April, and it is so good. I've just kept buying more. It's and this is the first time they're sponsoring. I did that on my own volition, totally unbiased. It just is that good. I'm currently wearing their socks, their t-shirt, and the underwear. And next to me is their hoodie and their waffle uh, warm-knit shirt. <laughs> Over there in the coat closet is more of the stuff. My drawer upstairs has, I think, it, probably about 10 of their t-shirts and a few of their long-sleeve shirts, also known as the Merlin shirts. They are just great quality clothing. These, these, are, these are mostly focused on men's essentials. So underwear, socks, t-shirts. They have sweatpants and, and workout gear now, too. Um, when I work out... 
everything I wear except for my shoes is made by Mack Weldon. I have the shorts, the like everything. And it's just all so good. And they know it's good. They are con- they're so confident that it's good. Order your first pair of underwear. If you don't like it, you can keep it. They don't want it back. They'll give you a full refund. You can still keep it. That's how confident they are that you're going to like it. So they have this wonderful line of silver thread things that are naturally antimicrobial. This includes uh, at least shirts, socks, and underwear. I wear these in the summertime, and honestly, you don't stink when you wear them. It's shocking. Like I, they, this, this is what converted me, is how good they are in hot weather. And in the summertime, I'm telling you, you have to get their underwear and their shirts. Uh, and of course, if you, if you don't need the silver or you don't want to wear awesome fabric for some reason, they have lots of other fabrics as well, and they're all really nice. They're long sleeve stuff, they're short sleeve stuff, their underwear, their socks. I highly suggest you try Mac Weldon. I would not tell you. They, they can't pay me to say that. They can pay me to read their script. They cannot pay me to tell you that I'm wearing their stuff right now, that I love it, that I've been wearing it for the last year. I begged them to become a sponsor just so I could tell you how good this is. So see for yourself at MacWeldon.com, and you can get 20% off your first order by using code ATP at checkout. That is MacWeldon.com with code ATP for 20% off your first order. Trust me on this. You got to give this a try. Thank you so much to Mac Weldon for sponsoring our show and for keeping me comfortable and not stinking all summer. Google I.O. is happening, uh, or at least it's happening as we record this. I watched bits and pieces of the uh, the general keynote, and I only saw a tiny bit of what I would call the State of the Union, which... I forget what exactly what they called it, but it's basically the the nerd keynote that follows the general purpose keynote. Um, I don't know how you guys want to handle this. I guess I'll just go in the order of whatever I guess was John put together in the show notes. No, I don't. No, don't. You have to. Should have read ahead. Um, oh, so did, first, did any of us watch the whole thing? I watched the fourteen minute Verge recut of it, <laughs> which I consider fair. Casey, did you watch it? <laughs> I watched uh, most of the the general public keynote, but not all of it, and almost none of the other keynote. So I watched as much of it as I could, which was maybe a quarter of it. Uh, but <laughs> You laughed at me watching the 14-minute cut, and you couldn't even watch the whole thing? No, ju- ju- for time constraints. It's not like I was bailing out. For time constraints. Like it, it was, yeah, um, I also had time constraints. I had a lot of napping to do today. It was more important than that. Oh, my God. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, because I had a podcast last night, so I couldn't watch last night. And tonight I did as much as I could in between making dinner and coming here. Anyway, so I and I put a bunch of comments in here from from tweets and stuff when it was going on. But I think clearly, as far as everything that I've seen, and maybe Marco with the 14 minute supercut can tell me if I'm missing something. There is one aspect of this keynote that I think is worth discussing in isolation. And if we have more next week, after all of us have either seen more of Google IO or decided that nothing, there was nothing else interesting, we can talk about it then. But I think we should concentrate this discussion on one particular demo. And we all know the demo we're talking about, because I think it is mm-hmm. the most interesting and it is emblematic of Google itself and the whole rest of the thing. And the other things that they announced similarly tie into it. Um, and I guess I'll let our chief summarizer in chief describe that demo since I'm sure he's seen it. Uh, that is one of the things I saw, and my initial reaction, and I will explain what it is momentarily, my initial reaction was my chin hitting the floor, and just like in Looney Tunes, my tongue like rolling out like a red carpet across <laughs> the room. Um, it's a gross carpet. I, yeah, right? Uh, I, I have since had some different thoughts about it, but that my initial reaction was, 
oh my God, I just witnessed the future and it happened today. So what, what am I talking about? I forget exactly how they set up the context, but what they were trying to say was, hey, what if you really wanted to make a dinner reservation? You really wanted to make it for four people at a particular restaurant, and you knew you wanted it to be uh, perhaps on a certain day, or you just knew that it needed to fit in your schedule, in your calendar. What if you didn't actually want to call that, that restaurant, though? Maybe they're very difficult to get a hold of. Maybe you just can't be bothered, whatever. So Google, I, I guess it's the Google Assistant, which is their kind of Siri, if you will, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it will actually, or it is capable of placing a telephone call to that restaurant on your behalf, which in and of itself, okay, fine. You know, that's surprise. That's not entirely surprising. I can just imagine, you know, imagine, you know, hello, ritzy restaurant in New York City. Hello, this is Google, you know, or something like that. But they played a recording of this conversation and it could not have been further from what I expected. It sounded unnervingly like a human. And I'm not talking about Uncanny Valley unnervingly. I'm saying we started in, you know, hello, hello, fellow children. Uh, we started there, w- walked right through the Uncanny Valley and went into, holy crap, that's, that's real. That, that almost sounds like a recording of a human being. And the most fascinating thing about it was, Aside from the fact that it was conversational, the most fascinating thing about it was it actually said like, um, hmm, you know, like, uh, you know, so the, the, the maitre d' or whomever on the other end of the line says, oh, you know, we don't have any available availability on the ninth Would the 10th work. And then Google said, hmm, um, yeah, that should be fine. You know, it, it inserted these synthetic pauses and stumbles and ums and hmms in a way that was mind-blowing. I could not believe what I was watching. And there are implications, many implications of this, but if we could just for a moment focus on what we saw and not really unpack the meaning of it, is that a fair characterization? Like, Marco, what did you think when you saw the 14-minute demo or the re- recap? I, you know, I, too, am very impressed with the technology behind this. But I think this is, this is such a, a typical like Silicon Valley and in particular Google thing to do where you have amazing technical smarts and you're applying them in a way that probably has some unintended consequences or at least you don't care about the consequences whether you intend them or not and is also kind of creepy and a little unsettling. You know, that, that's, this is, it's so stereotypically Google great ai great big data service kind of creepy you know and and not really getting the the human problems here you know i there's lots of weirdness about this so one big thing is like you know some people have pointed out like what they're basically doing is turning the workers at restaurants and stuff into unpaid api endpoints you know, so that's that's a little bit <laughs> that's a little bit weird, and and that's yeah. amazing. And the other thing is, like, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I like when I get pizza, my pizza guy, he has like two iPads at the register that are both running like different apps for all these different like menu ordering services and pickup services and everything. Like, he has to run like his side of it, and like you look in like any restaurant these days, like they're busy. They have to be dealing with all these online ordering systems, all these apps and everything, in addition to people actually calling them on the phone and people coming into the place. The last thing they need is for 
robocalls that pretend not to be robocalls, which is a big problem, to be calling them and making these like kind of human-like but a little bit off requests uh, via voice and, and kind of taking up their time on the phone. Like it's just it's kind of weird on a number of levels. It, it does seem like Google is taking advantage of the people on the other end. You know, the, and these are people who don't have time to deal with BS from Google. Like you, as the user of this, couldn't be bothered to not pick up the phone because you're probably already holding the phone, but to tap a different spot on the phone to make the phone call to actually just be a human for two seconds and talk to them. Now I get we don't like making phone calls. I get that. I don't like making phone calls either, but I would feel way worse about initiating one of these, you know, on, on the back end on my behalf than, than I would about actually placing that phone call. It's just, it's dehumanizing to the people on the other end. It's wasteful of their time. And I think it's a little bit insulting to try to hide the fact that you are a bot calling them. Like, I think that what they should do, if they're going to do this at all, and I'm not sure they should, but if they're going to do this at all, they should begin the call with, you know, a quick way of basically saying what's going on. To be say, basically saying, hi, this is the Google Assistant calling on behalf of John Syracusa. Do you have a reservation for this day? Like, make it very clear. And stop with the fake ums and mms. Like, the, all that is doing is trying to trick people. And that is not in, in good faith. That is trying to take advantage of people and try to trick them into playing into your API without being willing participants of that. And that's just that's just kind of sleazy. I, I just I don't like that. Um, and if they did it the the robotic way, like where they actually just say what it is and they're they're upfront about it, that at least is you know it's not trying to trick anybody. It is still wasteful of people's time, and I still would feel bad about initiating that call. But I at least wouldn't feel like I was like. I don't know, just like, yeah, deceiving people. It's just, it's just a weird thing. Um, and, you know, there's, a, there's another feature that, that I think one of you wants to bring up about um, calling about holiday hours, where apparently, like, on holidays, where hours might be different, they will call the, the place, like, once in the morning to see what the hours are, and then they'll just cache those results so that, allegedly, it saves them from all these phone calls all day. What if they miss that call? What if they misinterpret the results from that call. When you think about the ramifications of before, if the person on the other end of the, on, of the phone you know, said the wrong thing once in the morning to one person, it affected one potential customer. Now, if you slip up and say the wrong thing once in the morning, it could affect all your customers that day who would have come there from search. There are ramifications to these kinds of things that really just seem not really that good for the local businesses that are on the other side of this. And it's all, all of this is to create minor conveniences for lazy tech dudes who can't not just pick up the phone because their phone's already in their hand, but can't literally push one button on the phone to tap that phone number and call them instead. And I think that's, I think this is a step too far, especially when it involves deception of the person on the other end and potentially wasting their time. So I want to talk about the technology behind this because I think that's that's you know Casey's first impression was based on the the dazzling tech and that's how I like to mm -hmm. think about these things and think about how how they could find themselves in a position where they're using this technology in this particular way. But first, you have to talk about the tech, um, and the the tech they're showing is it's obviously uh, you know 
speech to text because the person on the other end of the phone call says things and Google Assistant has to figure out what it is they're saying. So it's going to convert their speech into text. Then it has to have some understanding of what it is that they said. And then it also has to have some understanding of what its mission is. I'm I'm going to try to get a reservation for this time for this many people, right? And the parameters of that mission, uh, you know, all, all the different things like what if nothing's available? What if they don't have, they have a particular call where they couldn't reserve a table for that many people? Like, you know, so it has to have that mission and has to understand what the person says. And then, then it has to be able to engage in a conversation, a back and forth of saying, you said this, now I say this and keeping the state of it all in, uh, in its mind, uh, you know, sort of semantic analysis of when, when you say that, that you, when you make that sound thing on the other end of the phone, it means these words and these words mean this actual, you know, message or meaning. And that applies to what we've said in the past in this way. That's the, that's the tech that they're trying to show there. Um, and researching and developing that tech, I think is really important, a really important area of research. Uh, because if you can do that better than we currently can by some appreciable degree, many interesting opportunities come up. Like if I, if I told you that even if it's for a very narrow domain, like making an appointment or something like that, whatever, you know, pick it, pick the narrow domain you're choosing. If I told you I could get a computer to understand, uh, meaning behind things that you say and to engage you in a conversation to, uh, to accomplish a goal. Uh, if you've been listening to me talk about cylinders on the show for a long time, it's been my uh, push in the past several months worth of shows when we were talking about uh, HomePod and everything that I want to engage my cylinder in a conversation and work towards a goal, right? It's the same exact tech, only the difference here is I'm initiating the conversation. I know I'm talking to a cylinder because it's in my own house and it's sitting right there. There's no deception involved, and I would find that interaction better than having to initiate a series of commands or make a macro for myself or know a particular syntax or whatever. And even just within the realm of the things that cylinders are supposed to already do to, to be able to have the extra smarts on display here, to understand nuances of speech and to, to understand like the overall mission of what I'm trying to accomplish and to help me refine it and narrow it and to be helpful. That technology is incredibly important and, should be developed and so i applaud google for doing that this of all the places where this technology could be applied i would not have even predicted that this would be where they because they they have a thing called google assistant this is just like this they're a cylinder in my house with google assistant on it they have phones like isn't that the first most obvious application of that anyway but setting that aside the second aspect related to the application that they that they are showing here, which is all we're going to make a phone call for you for you behind the scenes, which by the way, you don't get to hear this phone call. You just talk to the assistant and it says, okay, I'll make that reservation for you. And then you just wait and wait and wait. And in the background, it's having a phone call that you don't get to hear and don't participate in, in any way. Right. And then it comes back to you and says, yeah, I totally made that reservation for you. Um, <laughs> in that particular application of this technology, the pitch is that, you know, you don't have to be involved with this. Don't worry about the details, but Google Assistant will handle it. And uh, all of the, the things that Marco was talking about, uh, you know, of how uh, how deceptive it is and how disrespectful it is to the person at the end and how it, like, how it isn't that hard to think of a much more respectful way to do this, like by pre-announcing yourself and so on and so forth, but that that's not what they chose to do, that they're really leaning on the fact that they can, you know, fake you out by pretending to be human, which, by the way, I think, I think there still are in the uncanny value. Uh, you can... 
you can tell these things are not quite human just like they're still in the uncanny valley it's not totally convincing. it's way better than it was before like, even even in the can demo they did it like the way when when they when it asked for noon and it said you know we don't have anything and like the way the way that the assistant like re-asked yeah do you have anything between 10 a.m and 12 p.m like no one talks like that like this is your demo this is your can demo like it's obviously like almost any response you get from a human being has a pretty high chance of not being of, of like being some kind of like slightly exceptional condition or things that require more explanation that the google assistant will respond in some way that makes it clear like either this is a really weird person or this is not a person yeah it seems, still seems very unlike a person and that that leads me to my next uh point about this tech it's the same point i made about self-driving cars in the past um and it, it also uh you know is related to the deception angle here this thing no matter how good it is no matter how long it's in beta it's going to fall over a lot uh and when it does uh because it's a really hard problem like it, it's it, you you can you will be trivially easy to be able to to stump this thing and to have it start saying nonsensical computery things that are not related to what you say that are to the point where the person would hang up on it right uh because everyone sees this demo and it's like oh it's how 9000 we're there it's like you are not there like that last 10 percent, just like self-driving cars the level five automation right that last little bit is that's a mountain that's way bigger than you think it is right and so even though it seems like we're right around the corner and it's like oh Moore's law will be there in two seconds it's way harder than you think and so if you start off this conversation with the deception like if that's your goal it will be a hundred times worse when the thing falls on its face and it will fall on its face a lot uh and from from the business's perspective obviously ideally they would all have actual apis and not humans but if they don't want to do that from the business's perspective they want your business they want this reservation if you pre-announced and said this is the google assistant i'm a computer acting on behalf of a person blah 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 after the first four or five calls of that type the the person on the other end would know how to most efficiently deal with the stupid computer thing to get the reservation because they want the reservation they want the money right it's the whole reason people set up like with all these apps and everything right and maybe it will motivate them to get on one of these apps to not have to deal with these stupid computer phone calls but they'll you know it's better than not getting a reservation at all right um but if the thing's going to fall over like 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 phone trees like when we you know when you call the support thing we all know their phone trees and we all know their their various failure modes by this point and we know how to navigate them efficiently i would much rather have that than something that tries to fool me into thinking it's human but then like goes berserk and now i have to go oh i, I wasted all this time talking to you like a human when i should have just been playing you like a video game to get to the point where we <laughs> we, we, we make the reservation like let's just let me you know a text adventure all over again uh so you know i don't even if people see this and they think this is a great feature and it has an important applicability in my life is that, that's another point on this that some of the comments i pulled out here like there are places where this exact feature is actually really important for people who literally can't make that reservation themselves and do want to appear as human as possible right there's an accessibility angle to this um but even in those situations even in the most optimistic scenario my advice to anyone watching this is do not expect this to work even as well as it did in that demos all the time because it won't like it will it will work 
and you know so it, it, some, it doesn't always work with humans sometimes it's difficult for a human to make a reservation sometimes you can't hear anything in the restaurant sometimes people are ornery sometimes they hang up on you sometimes you lose your cell signal right but the success rate of this thing is going to be way lower than people think it does we are a long way off from me even with limited limited domain we are a long way off from basically from passing the Turing test. Now, it doesn't mean your reservation is not going to be a success because once the other person on the end, other end figures out that it's a computer, they'll play the little game and they'll get the reservation because they want the sale, right? But don't get starry-eyed about how you know amazing. I mean, it, it, it is an amazing leap from anything that we may have seen before, but it is still so far from the whatever the equivalent of level, level five self-driving automation is for <laughs> having a conversation with a human even within a limited domain because humans are inscrutable and it's really difficult to you just can't account for everything that they're going to say and do you can't account for all the nuances you just it's like the reason they work at all is because when the computer acts like a like a pig-headed computer the person eventually best case reverts to thinking this is just a pig-headed person who's not listening to what i say and like they're just they just have a one-track mind and they just want to make this reservation and they they didn't understand what i said back to them because they're just they're not paying attention or maybe they're driving or something and then you just roll their eyes like that's the best case scenario um but yeah the, if and when they actually launch this i can't wait to see all of the uh the, the conversations that the people manage to get this thing into where it just goes completely off the rails because it's a hard problem and that's why we're also impressed by it it's such a hard problem it's like i didn't even know we were this far along we're surely we're within striking distance and i think that we are not within striking distance Oh, I mean, you can even just picture, like, you know, what if the person on the other end has follow-up questions? Oh, okay, you want a reservation? Where? What part of the restaurant? Mm-hmm. It's simply like that. Or like, oh, do you want do you want a table outside or inside? You know, or or like, if you're ordering a pizza. Oh, do you want a medium or a large? The most misguided one was when he's, uh, you know, obviously it's forward-looking. There was, uh, this was Sundar Pichai was the person doing the thing, I think. I don't know. Uh, anyway, the presenter said, you know, we don't have a lot of time, so maybe, like, your your kid is sick. And you need to make a doctor's reser- uh, a doctor's appointment for them. Like, have you ever made a doctor's appointment for a sick kid? <laughs> you, that conversation <laughs> involves a lot of questions about what's wrong with your kid, <laughs> and did you take their temperature, and how are they feeling, and when's the last time they threw up, and, you know, but, like, no computer is for, uh, hell, I get on that call, and I feel like I have to have, like, <laughs> st- information ready, like, to be like, when's the last time they came in, when's this, but, you know, like... There is no way I would let a computer make that call. I barely think I myself am competent to make that call, right? Maybe I would let them make the call to the school to tell them that they're not going to be in that day, but really the schools just have a website where you can click something because that's stupid. But, uh, but like, yeah, that was that was the wrong example. Ordering food, making a reservation, something with a business transaction where the person on the other end is motivated to deal with my crap, computerized crap or otherwise because i'm sure those people deal with people crap all the time too people being rude when they make reservations and just generally being inscrutable right they're motivated at least to do that but like my doctor is not motivated to listen to my computer my, my doctor like the whoever answers the the desk has a ton of questions about my kid very specific questions to determine whether you should even come in oh we don't take pink eye in the office you should do this and that and what do you want to do and what pharmacy is near like no way a computer can handle that um so I think they're, they're, uh, I hesitate to say the heart is in the right place. I actually think it is. I think the heart is in the right place in terms of doing this research and, and having the overall goal of trying to help people. But the way they're going about it baffles me because like I said, they have, they have a cylinder that they sell you that I would love to talk to in this way 
that would not involve deception at all. And if my cylinder could talk to me like this within the limited domain of music or appointments or whatever, it would be an amazing advance of how I talked uh, over how I talked to my cylinder today. But they didn't demo that. They demoed it making phone calls for you, which just boggles my mind. I think this is, to my eyes, a very good example of just because we can doesn't mean we should, which is basically the summary of all of Silicon Valley, in my personal opinion. Like, it, it's it's so obvious. Like, you know, after I saw the technology, which again I cannot stress enough, I think the technology is amazing. And like you said, which is what I was going to bring up, you know, there is an accessibility angle wherein I think this is more reasonable like if i am mute if i literally cannot talk on the phone yeah or if you have a speech impediment or if you have say like maybe you have to call a place where you don't speak their language very well or you have a thick accent that's sometimes misunderstood a lot like there's lots of accessibility reasons for this kind of technology but sheer laziness is not it. But the but the application would be different there. You'd be speaking through it. You would like you would you would want to be in on the conversation. In other words, you wouldn't want it to go off and do it completely on its own. You would want to be, like in most situations where someone has a synthetic voice speaking for them, they don't want to leave the room when it's happening. Like they, if they can be there and see your face or hear you or hear the other end of the conversation or monitor it or otherwise nudge it in the right direction, like they want to be some kind of participant and not just like uh, you know set it sail and just let the computer do what it's going to do like and getting to cases like just because you can doesn't mean you should like it's it's more subtle than that because they can and should develop this technology but it's exactly it's, it's exactly how you choose to apply it and the subtle difference between what they demoed and talking to your cylinder which seemed like the, isn't that the same thing it's a human talking to a computer having this conversation but the difference like the difference is subtle and it's telling that this is how they chose to show this off maybe because it's seemingly the most impressive but it is the the most ill-conceived um and like and and i don't even think like i say it's ill-conceived just because of the world we live in now it could be as many have pointed out that like you know once this genie's out of the bottle we will deal with it the same way we deal with those stupid phone trees which we could have had the same exact conversation about because they have a lot of the same problems it's disrespectful to the caller sometimes you get tricked into thinking it's human but eventually we just all get used to it we get used to the disrespect we all learn to very quickly pick up on the cues of whether this is a pre-recorded human's voice or not right despite no matter how they try to fool us and they do try to fool you on those stupid phone trees sometimes we just all get used to it and we accept it and i Fully expect that this, this turns out to be popular. This could totally happen with that technology as well. But I still maintain that if you have this technology and are advancing it, this is not the most bang for your buck. There are better ways to apply this technology that will be more useful and more helpful to more people than this specific detailed implementation. Even for the accessibility angle, I, most people would want to probably identify themselves as I'm speaking through this thing right? Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. But it seems like that when things fall apart, you'd want there to be some kind of explanation. Like if, if you see someone in person and they're using an assistive device to talk to you, you understand what the deal is and you can accommodate that, right? But if you think you're just talking to a regular person, don't realize it's someone who has to use this to, to communicate with you, give, you know, have a, some sort of allowance so that I think that would help as well. So, I, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not even going to go so far as to say that this is a way this technology should never be used. I'm willing to believe that this is a way te this technology will be used, that when we're all 80, it will be so boring that no one will even talk about it anymore. But right here and now, uh, I'm going to say, like, there are, there are richer veins to be mined than this.
Can you imagine if it was Siri making these calls? It'd be like, you know, hi, can I have an appointment between 10 and noon? And the other person's like, sure, I have one at 10. And Siri would be like, what do you want to convert 10 to? Right. Thinking. <laughs> ask, ask again later. I found this on the internet for you. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's so tough because it, I can't stress enough. My, my initial reaction was so overwhelmingly positive. But then the moment I really started thinking about this, I was like, oh, this is... This is kind of creepy. And I don't know, I, I, maybe it's just me, but I feel like this is just Silicon Valley in a nutshell. Like it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of people, probably dudes, probably entitled dudes just thinking, you know what? I really just don't want to be bothered making a reservation. Like I'm, I'm too good for that. My time is too valuable. So what can I do? I can use the whole of human technology to fake something that sounds like a human to make that reservation for me. It's just, so I can I can see where you'd come away with that on this, but I I really think that there is actually a little kernel of the '70s era Silicon Valley idealism in this as well, perhaps a naive idealism, which is also part of it. But and you know, like, like it was phrased as saving you time, and you can say, okay, it's got to save you time because you're so important, that your time is so valuable because you're you know a, a rich tech nerd. But first of all, this technology is not exclusively available to rich people. Um, sure, it, fair point. It is, it is Android is very democratizing technology it's available on cheapo phones everywhere it have a lot of it happens on the servers you don't need to have an expensive device and the way it was framed for the most part was we're trying to help people with their lives people have challenges in their lives everybody does and we want to help them solve the problems they have in their life. whether this is you know the biggest problem or the way people would want it to be solved, that was the stated motivation. Andy Anako had a very uh, uh, optimistic take on this when he was tweeting it in real time. And he uh, kept coming back to the the message that Google was sending out throughout the presentation. As, uh, not directly most of the time, but more or less indirectly contrasting themselves with Facebook. Basically, this is Andy uh, interpreting what they're saying. It's like they're, uh, they, mean Google, are trying to say, Facebook uses its power to abuse your privacy and exploit you and undermine institutions. We use our power, we mean Google, to help you and improve your life. And that was the message. Use Google products because you have challenges in your lives and Google products will help you overcome them. Uh, and again, I see the elite angle on there, but I think the the populist sort of techno-optimism of we take amazing technology, make it available to everybody for free or cheap, and it helps them with their lives, is a very sort of 70s Silicon Valley bicycle for the mind, personal computer on every desk, utopian uh, philosophy. Again, perhaps naive, but I think, like I said, the heart is in the right place for this type of thing. Um, they, you know, There are other aspects of the presentation I'll probably talk about next week, like the digital well-being stuff. Um, what was the other thing? Like the... Uh, well, the, the, the developing on Chromebooks, the whole Chromebook angle too, why they even do that. They have these cheapo computers like theirs. I I mostly give Google the benefit of the doubt on this front, especially because, uh, well, I was going to say, especially because it is it's it is less clearly tied to advertising. It's still tied to commerce, right? But it's less, less clearly tied to this is a way for us to show you more ads, right? I mean, it's a way to gather more information about you so they can show you more ads. But anyway, I really believe the people working on this project think that the technology they're developing, the ability of a computer to understand and negate in a conversation in a little prob limited problem domain, can help humanity. I believe it can help humanity. It's just that I'm not sure they've figured out quite how yet. We are sponsored this week by Eero. Finally, Wi-Fi that works. 
we all know that one Wi-Fi router does not cover most places very well because there's things like walls that no matter how many antennas you put on your router, there's going to be like small dead zones or rooms where it just doesn't reach or the very edge of your yard where you have a smart bulb that you really want it to reach, but it just doesn't. What you need is a distributed system that broadcasts Wi-Fi from multiple physical points in a big mesh. Now, this is what schools and businesses and things have used for years, but they have to use you know, expensive and hard-to-administer enterprise stuff. Eero brings enterprise-grade hardware and features to consumers in an incredibly easy-to-use package. It's the easiest setup I've ever seen of any router, let alone a mesh system. It's incredibly easy. You launch the Eero app, it sets you through the whole thing. You start out with the Eero base station. You connect that the same way you connect any other router. You connect it to your internet connection. Then you plug in the Eero beacons that you have, the additional Eero beacons, and these are going to communicate with that base station and broadcast a nice mesh of Wi-Fi all around your house. The app will help you place the beacons in effective locations. You can measure their speed to make sure you're putting them places where they're actually going to work and not like stepping on each other's toes or anything. And your experience is seamless. You walk around your house, you're connect- you only see one network, and it just covers everything. It's wonderful. And again, I can't stress how easy it is to use. If you need any help, they do have great support as well, but I have a feeling you won't need it. So see for yourself how easy Eero is. I've never seen an easier system to set up for Wi-Fi, and it works really well. For free overnight shipping to the U.S. and Canada, visit Eero.com, select overnight shipping, and then enter promo code ATP to make that shipping free. Once again, visit Eero.com, that's E-E-R-O.com, and at checkout, select overnight shipping, then enter promo code ATP to make it free to the U.S. or Canada. Thank you so much to Eero for sponsoring our show. So this past week was the uh, 20th anniversary of the original iMac, and lots of our friends uh, in the in the Apple and, and writing world have given wonderful retrospectives, and lots of our podcasting friends have had lots of great talks about it. When the iMac came out in 1998, right? Yeah, I was still a PC person. I mostly ignored it, like I ignored almost everything Apple did back then because I was a PC person. But I do want to talk about one part of the iMac that did have a lot to do with the PC world because we shared it with them. I want to have retrospective. Instead of, instead about the iMac, my retrospective is about USB and quite how much USB changed the world. Back then, like it was just a, it was like this new port and it was hyped and it was, you know, everything that any new technology product got back then, you know, standard level of hype, but I didn't fully realize like until a few years in quite how how much USB changed things. For one, it was a very inexpensive standard on all sides. It was inexpensive to host on the computer side. It was inexpensive to make USB devices. The logic on devices was very simplistic. It was just very cheap and simple to implement. This is why it beat FireWire at pretty much everything. This is why it beat Thunderbolt at pretty much everything and still does. USB is really cheap to implement. It also uses really cheap, simple cables and connectors. USB cables were standardized a long time ago. And so even as the user, when you're buying USB stuff... It's generally not only does it cost less to, to buy up front, but also like you probably already have a cable for it. So if, for things that don't come with cables, you don't, you don't usually have to buy one. You usually have them and you can keep USB cables around and use them with lots of different devices over time. So it was just very inexpensive on all sides and that benefits pretty much everybody. Also, compared to other things at the time, you know, when USB was introduced in the late 90s, 
the competitors on the PC side were basically serial ports, parallel ports, and SCSI. And and SCSI was very rare on PCs. Like it was, you see it like on high end workstations and servers. I know Macs used it a little a little bit more, but on PC, most almost no PCs sold to consumers had SCSI cards. You could buy one, but it was just it, they were expensive. And SCSI was, you know, it was like a big ribbon cable interface. It was, it was just a big parallel thing. It was a big pain in the butt. You had to have like SCSI terminators on the end of the SCSI chain. It was just a big pain. USB came and replaced all of that on the PC side with these small connectors with small thin cables the cables could be way longer they could be up to 15 feet long they were widely available pretty much everywhere you can get them in lots of different lengths different colors if you wanted usb also introduced i think for the first time in the pc side bus powered devices keyboards mice had their own power through the ps2 port but like other low powered devices could get their power from the port so they wouldn't need their own power supplies this is again like another massive innovation in USB, and and, and I mean the, the number of innovations in USB. This is why I, I I was thinking about this on my dog walk yesterday. Like I was just enumerating in my head like all the all the things that USB changed for the first time. It's a huge list. So another another big thing, just the sheer number of ports you could have on a computer. Um, you know, until recently, USB ports were were quite plentiful. Um, <laughs> you know, like, like couldn't help it, could you? <laughs> no, of course not. Most PCs sold back then had two serial ports and one parallel port and two PS2 ports. Those are keyboard and mouse. But then almost all your peripherals had to be a serial port, which you only had two of, or the parallel port, which was usually your printer. And that's it. Otherwise, if you wanted to add on more than that, you usually had to buy an expansion card and stick it into one of your card slots. With USB, you could have more ports. And usually, you know, the, the, the very first USB controllers came with two ports and, and fairly soon in pc history four became standard and and now there's even way more than that and then also huge game changer hubs to add more ports this was not possible with serial ports or parallel ports and and scuzzy could do like a chain up to a certain amount but it was a pain and anyway again that was pretty much unheard of in consumer pcs there was never there was no such thing as a serial port hub or a parallel port hub that could multiply your parallel port into more more parallel ports. Again, adding more ports meant adding expansion cards or just not having more ports. So that was another massive change. Then, on top of that was the whole family of things that went into what was called at the time breathlessly plug and play. Uh, and yeah. we made fun of Microsoft relentlessly for how bad plug and play was in Windows 95 and everything. But the fact is, there's a number of things about USB that changed everything about peripherals. So number one, you could connect and disconnect things without turning off the computer or having to reboot to get them to start working. This was huge. Like, if you wanted to install a new you know device on on one of your other ports a lot of times you'd have to reboot or turn the computer physically off to do it either safely or in a way that worked and you know obviously also if you're putting in cards then you have to turn the computer all the way off and but leave it plugged in so it's grounded uh nobody ever did that but anyway that was a huge huge pain right there solved by actually hot plugging and unplugging things then the way devices would communicate to the computer before USB, there really wasn't a way for devices to self-identify with a computer. The way the architecture worked would be like you'd install a sound card. 
and the sound card would have jumpers or dip switches on it that would pre-configure it, like it would hard configure it to be addressable by a certain I.O. address and certain interrupts, certain IRQs and DMAs. Remember all this? Oh, yeah. When you would set up your sound card in your game that you were playing or whatever, you would have to tell the game, okay, I have a Sound Blaster 16. It's at I.O. address 220, IRQ 5, DMA 1. And you had to make sure that was right according to the jumpers on the card uh, because <laughs> if it wasn't, it just wouldn't work, right? There was no way for your card to tell the computer, I'm a Sound Blaster 16. I'm an audio device. Here's how you talk to me. Here's where I am. USB brought all of that in one standard. In addition to you know the nice cables and ports and hubs and everything, it brought device self-identification and auto-configuring of things like how to address it. That changed so many things. It made so many things better. And then combined with that, the other massive change with USB is that it introduced something called standard class-compliant profiles. So this includes, we still hear these terms sometimes today, HID, USB audio, and USB mass storage profiles. So what this means is that you could, for the first time, I think, you could make like a standard USB sound card and you could plug it into a computer. The computer would see it because of plug and play. It would know how to address it and you could make it so that it required no drivers at all because it it, it, it would just conform to the USB audio class compliant standard. Same thing, you could do the same thing with keyboards, mice, game pads, joysticks, uh, and then eventually mass storage, hard drives, SD cards, stuff like that. Like all, anything that, like there, there was this whole class, network cards, video capture devices, all of these things could be driverless that people could sell a, you know, a device or whatever that you didn't have to install their terrible driver on. I can't tell you how much hardware that I had to either give up using or that never worked right at all because of random problems with their drivers in the PC world, like, or that, or that they wouldn't update their driver for windows 90, 98 or whatever. Like it was just, it was always a pain. And so the more you could do without drivers, the better USB brought that world before USB. You had to do pretty much everything with custom drivers with USB. You had standard class compliant profiles. That also meant that Macs and Linux PCs were usually able to use them too. And we still see those advantages today because when you, when you have USB standard class compliant things, they also, for instance, work on iOS devices through the camera connection kit with no configuration, no drivers, nothing like that. All of this was back like in 1998. And a lot of what made the iMac possible and what made it great and what made it work was really USB. And, you know, we complain a lot about the current standards and everything, but, like, USB still has all these things, and all of that started back then. So all of our friends are talking about how the iMac changed everything for Apple, and that's great. I think they're right, but I wasn't there for that part. I was in the PC world, and what we saw was that USB changed everything for us. Well, I have a couple minor corrections for uh, Marco in the PC world, uh, (laughs) based on on old Mac stuff. Uh, The most part, I agree with what you said, but uh scuzzy on the mac scuzzy was everywhere in the early days of the mac it wasn't just like a a, a niche feature that was on just the high-end macs it was everywhere yeah because macs were expensive lol yeah that's true um uh usb uh was part of uh, a transition that started slightly before usb when the the io chips and and basically the price of compute and uh, uh went down to the point where there was a realization 
that you could get uh, less expensive and faster I.O. by having uh, by doing a very fast serial interface than a parallel one. Like uh, uh, SCSI was kind of the culmination of like, look, we need lots of data and we need it to go fast. So let's send it all at once in parallel down these gigantic cables and be really careful with electrical interference induced terminators and blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, because that was the way, you know, it's kind of like, you know, oh, we need we need more traffic on this road. Let's add more lanes. Right. Uh, and then the uh, the analogy falls down here with the cars thing. But like imagine you say, no, instead of having a bunch of lanes with lots of cars in them, let's just have one lane and send the cars at the speed of light and have something that can somehow deal with <laughs> with shoving the cars quickly into this little tiny drinking straw. So the, the price of compute went to the point where they realized serial interfaces were the future, not parallel interfaces. So we'd basically taken parallel interfaces as far as they could go. We realized how, how problematic they were. Uh, they're just finicky and big i mean i have scuzzy cables that were like the thickness of like a, a hot dog like they're <laughs> huge huge non-bending cables that just very very delicate very finicky very capable and you could daisy chain them which was interesting everything but but serial interfaces were the future and on that front what apple had for a long time before usb came along which had a lot of the benefits that you cited was apple desktop bus uh, adb was used to connect essentially the keyboard and mouse and they had serial ports that had a similar looking connector for printers and stuff that look work more like you would expect a pc serial port to, to do but a keyboard and mice uh i don't think there were any ever any adb hubs that i suppose there could have been but the keyboard had an adb port on one side that you would connect to the computer and you could connect your mouse to a port on the other side of the keyboard which should look familiar to anybody who has a usb keyboard with two uh usb ports on it where you connect your your wired mouse to the keyboard if you still have a wired mouse back in the day right you could plug and unplug ADB peripherals while the computer was on and sparks did not fly and the computer understood what you were doing and whatever you plugged in, your computer would find it and configure it. Obviously, it's Apple desktop bus. It's proprietary. It's not an interesting standard. So, of course, Apple could do this because they understood where all the peripherals came from and they had their own standards for how they identified themselves. Um, and ADB was a serial bus, mostly because, you know, it was for low bandwidth things and they didn't have to make it parallel, right? Uh, but those benefits a lot of the benefits of the sort of the usability of usb and the convenience of it apple had been enjoying since the mac se and the mac 2 or whenever adb was introduced that's i think that's when they they both came out um when usb came along it seemed like uh the next logical step because it's a serial interface because we can make serial interfaces fast and cheap the cables are thin and not giant thick disgusting scuzzy things the connectors were Despite all our complaints about, you know, the, the externally symmetrical and internally asymmetrical, incredibly infuriating uh, USB-A <laughs> connectors, they definitely looked more modern than ADB because ADB had like actual little pins inside it. It was like it was from the old era of like, you know, pins going into little holes in, in the back of your thing with like a metal sheath around it. And the, Apple did a pretty good job trying to make it so you understood the orientation because the, the connector itself was round, but it only went in one way. You had to line the pins up. So they made the actual casing of them flat on one side so you always knew like the flat side went up right and that's how you could figure out how to plug them in but it was a little bit fidgety but anyway usb was, was an upgrade in that regard and and uh you mentioned firewire before and how you know usb was more popular than firewire firewire was another one of those uh you know interfaces that came out of the idea that we can make really fast serial interfaces and give up on parallel but it was the high-end one it was like how do we replace the highest of the high bandwidth stuff uh, to replace SCSI with something that has way more bandwidth than USB and that has guarantees about timing and that can be, 
chained together without and, and that you can have high bandwidth without involving the then anemic cpu on the computer which is how usb saved a lot of money by having the computer cpu do a lot of the work and not having to put that put those smarts in the interface chips which made the interface chips cheaper on both the host device and the actual peripheral right so it's not as if firewire quote unquote lost to usb it was clearly aimed at a different segment at the less populous segment the high-end segment you know it ended up being used for digital video uh on on camcorders and stuff like that and you know it it lasted a pretty long time all things considered because it was very expensive but it was like there was never going to be a firewire mouse let's put it that way it's nonsensical right um but but it's part of the same family of serial over parallel um and so and finally on the imac front yeah like uh, as you know the imac (laughs) the most important thing about the imac was not the fact that it uh you know that it came with usb let's say like but lots of other podcasts have talked about the more important aspects of it that's what i thought we were going to talk about here but now we're out of time so i'm not going to uh, dwell on it any longer <laughs> uh but uh the fact that uh it you know not that it had usb but as as jason snell pointed out in his mac Workarm, that it dropped all of the other ports that are on macs that was the in terms of ports the the most shocking factor about it for an apple user because we had peripherals we had adb peripherals and the benefits of usb over adb especially like when usb is first coming on the scene it's like what does this do that my adb stuff doesn't do i've already got an adb trackpad an adb extended keyboard an adb mouse like why why do i need this new interface i can't use any peripherals what the hell happened to my SCSI port? I have stacks and stacks of SCSI hard drives here. I have a SCSI RAID. How do I connect these to my iMac? This thing is useless, right? And then I can't connect my printer to it. My printer's not USB. Who ever heard of a USB printer? I have a serial printer, and it got plugged into the serial port. The same serial port that's been on my Mac since, you know, 1986, right? I can't plug this in anywhere. How the hell do I print? And then, of course, the no floppy drive thing or whatever. Um, so as a Mac user, as Jason pointed out, the iMac was met with some hostility by people who had a bunch of peripherals that they can't plug in. And unlike our current USB-C situation, there was not any real hope of dongles. There was ADB USB dongles, which I think Ruber is still using to use his, uh, his uh, <laughs> Apple <laughs> Extended 2 keyboard, right? But in general, it's not as if you bought a dongle for your, your style writer and just used it for years and years after that. It's like, no, everyone got USB printers. Like, what happened is USB slipped through the whole industry for the reasons Marco stated, and we just all got new stuff and we said, Oh yeah, this is better because instead of having a SCSI port and two serial ports and ADB ports, now I just have USB and then firewire for the, for the expensive high bandwidth stuff. And that was better. And that was the future. And like, I think this is like a positive version of this, of what this, of the USB C story where there's a lot of parallels and they seem very similar, but it's sure taking a lot longer than it did with USB for the USB C revolution to, uh, to come along and sweep us all away and we're still kind of grumbling about dongles and kind of wishing we had some of our other ports back it also just it says quite a lot about just how how groundbreaking and forward-looking usb was that now 20 years later you can take a usb device that was released 20 years ago for usb 1.1 and plug it in to an imac pro without a dongle (laughs) and it'll probably like if it still works at all it will work on that computer that's that's my like nothing else in computing has lasted as long as usb has it's incredible well vga 
Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's not really used anymore. Though, <laughs> oh, you wish you wish it wasn't used. Well, yeah, I know projectors and stuff, but yeah, like mm-hmm. it, most compu- like most people in their house are not using VGA for anything. It's it's all HDMI and DVI and stuff. Even DVI is gone. I'm I'm amazed at the number of people take like their you know their Retina Max and plug them into a series of dongles that culminate in a VGA port so they can project. It <laughs> <laughs> happens all That's the fair. time at work, and I'm just like, just that is not the you are not getting the maximum value for your money out of that computer. <laughs> We are sponsored this week by Casper and the new Wave mattress. For $100 off your Wave purchase, visit casper.com slash ATP100 and use promo code ATP100. Terms and conditions apply. The Wave is the most innovative mattress from the sleep experts at Casper. It is the first mattress of its kind to relieve pressure at 36 different points so you can feel relaxed in ways you never thought possible. The Wave has advanced temperature regulating technology to help you sleep cool and comfortable without overheating. And only the Wave has five layers of superior foam, including a cushioning top layer for maximum comfort. The Wave is Casper's biggest breakthrough in sleep technology for exceptional comfort and deep restorative sleep and it supports you in all the right places whether you're a back stomach or side sleeper the casper wave gives you the support and relief you need for a good night's sleep thanks to its patent pending contouring system it adjusts to your body and its natural curves and it's designed to stay sturdy and keep its original form for years to come no matter how much time you spend on it all of this is an incredible value compared to similar high-end mattresses on the market. Experience Casper's most innovative mattress yourself. And this is the one I sleep on. I sleep on the Casper Wave. And man, is it good. I, I can't even tell you how good it is. It's, I, I stopped caring about mattresses once I got this one. because It's like, all right, I'm done. This is great. I, don't, I never need to look again. So you too can see this for yourself. Experience it in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. And it gets delivered right to your home in a small box. And all Wave purchases come with in-home white glove delivery and setup for free. So see for yourself with that 100-night home trial. You can't go wrong. For $100 off your Wave purchase, visit casper.com slash ATP100 and use promo code ATP100. That's casper.com slash ATP100, promo code ATP100. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you so much to Casper and the wonderful new Wave for sponsoring our show and supporting me while I sleep. All right, let's do some Ask ATP. And let's begin by Ky- with Keimer, who asks, how do you have Finder configured? Do you view as li- icons or list or columns? Do you show tab path status bars, range by name, date, none, icons in the toolbar, tags, etc.? Does it differ per folder, one config system-wide, or do you adjust it as you go? I adjust as I go. I also don't find this question terribly interesting but <laughs> i try to keep the uh i try to keep the path bar or whatever it's called at the bottom on the status bar at the bottom bottom on and other than that everything gets adjusted periodically i have just learned what the path bar is as you said that wow that could be it's useful like you don't even read my reviews <laughs> <laughs> uh, i use list view status bar on so i can see disk space um and uh i don't know that's a you know list view that's about it i uh i normally i'm sorting by name but in open save dialogues when i'm viewing either the desktop or the downloads folder i will sort those by date descending so that the new stuff always shows up on top because usually what i'm dealing with is the newest stuff all right john you only have let's let's cap you at 35 minutes if you don't mind i can't i can't go into (laughs) all the details of this but how i use the finder i continue to try to use the finder like I used to use the Finder in my first 
16 years of Mac use. Uh, the, the, <laughs> of course. The current Mac Finder does not want to be used that way, and it fights me every step of the way, but I continue to wage that battle, uh, mostly because it's, you know, I'm, I'm willing to forgive its forgetfulness and just, you know, repeat actions over and over again just to get the experience I want. So the experience I'm looking for, for people who know how the Finder used to work, is the two main views I use are Icon View and List View. Uh, icon view uh, a couple of windows i i try to keep the icons arranged and the window sized the way i want them like the applications window and stuff like that sort of you know win- windows with, without a lot of stuff in them list view for almost everything else for anything that has lots of stuff in it um and i'm very into the little you know disclosure triangles of d- disclosing different hierarchies and changing the sort order and stuff like that i never have the sidebar visible so i don't have the, the path bar or anything like that i always have the status bar visible because i always want to see the available disk space so if you were to look at my Finder desktop, chances are good that you would probably see one icon view window, if any, and just a bunch of list view windows with various parts disclosed, all with the little uh, status bar visible on the top. I'm surprised you closed the sidebar. I actually like the sidebar. No, I don't use it. I don't use the Finder as a browser is what I'm getting at. I do not use it as a browser. I try to use it as the old Finder, which is very difficult because it, it you know, Every once in a while, to give you an example, the applications window, which occasionally I find myself in, you know, messing with applications or dragging something from a disk image or whatever, right? Um, every once in a while, the application window, which I have sized and arranged in a particular way, decides, nope, I'm going to be in a different size and a different position, and I'm going to have the sidebar now. Why does it decide that? I don't know. It just does. And then I turn off the sidebar on it, and I put it back where I thought it was supposed to be, and I readjust the view settings for it, and then I close it and hope it remembers again next time but uh, you know at least like once a month or something some window that it had previously positioned and and configured in a particular way will decide now it wants to be this weird you know metal browser thing it's not metal anymore i know but no i don't i don't want to use it as a browser andreas ekegrin writes what are your thoughts on volvo using android and google maps and google assistant for their census system in the future I think it's first for car manufacturers. So as Chief Summarizer-in-Chief, uh, what this is referring to is Volvo in the last few days has announced that for their quote-unquote iDrive, if you will, uh, they're going to be working with Google to embed the voice-controlled Google Assistant, Google Play Store, Google Maps, and other Google services into its next-generation census infotainment system, which will be based on Android. As an owner of a uh, almost brand-new Volvo, uh, I find this very interesting. I... I'm tentatively optimistic about this. I would be very perturbed if this meant, as I presume it might, that I couldn't use CarPlay anymore. Um, I, I Obviously, this is for the next generation, so it's not going to affect Aaron's car. But in the future, if it ends up that you can only use Android Auto and not CarPlay, that would really annoy me. But that being said, it would be pretty sweet to have Google Maps as the actual onboard, like first party, sort of, so to speak, mapping application, um, which I think would be super cool. So like, Marco, obviously, this isn't relevant to you because you don't own a Volvo. But like, how would you feel about hypothetically Tesla saying, hey, we're going to use Google Maps from now on? Or do they already? And I don't realize it. They do use Google Maps for the map tiles and the map view. They don't use it for navigation. Oh, interesting. Okay. So does this? Do you think this would do anything for you? Then I guess it's sort of already there for you, huh? It's well. This is. It's not using like you know Android and Google Assistant and everything else. So uh, yeah, this 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 would be a step forward or a step significantly in that direction uh, from where Tesla is now. Uh, Ultimately, I I buy a car for its other factors, and I just deal with whatever entertainment system it has. Uh, So I would just deal with whatever they did. 
I would like Google Assistant in my car because I think it does a really good job of figuring out what the heck I want and doing it. Uh, and my like my my hilarious infotainment system on, on my Accord, like it it lets you do voice calling, uh, which occasionally I use. I know why don't I just do talk to my phone? I don't because I don't have Hey Dingus enabled. And anyway, it's a whole, a whole bunch of reasons why I don't use the phone thing. But my car itself has a way to do voice calls, and it is terrible. It is, it's a real, it's like a difficult text adventure. Like it's really hard. I know exactly <laughs> what to do and I still fail like 25% of the time, but I use it because my hands can be on the wheel. Uh, and then I don't have, you know, anyway, so I would love for my car or any future car to have a Google assistant and, and Google maps and Google navigation. Cause I think all those things are really good and surely better than what any car manufacturer would come up on their own. And also better than what car manufacturers would, you know, buy from some third party like tom tom or whatever whoever is selling infotainment systems now so i applaud volvo for making a deal with the best in class assistant and maps for their car and i wish more people would do it cool hudson hayward asks do you buy uh, it was asked as playstation 4 but i'm going to expand it do you buy uh, video games console video games on disc slash cartridge or is digital downloads. I generally like having physical cartridges or discs, but find the noise of the spinning disc to be excessive sometimes. Um, I generally speaking prefer cartridges for the switch because I can hand them to somebody else so they can play it for a minute. Um, so I don't have to worry about like installing an SD card or anything in the switch, which is not difficult for the record. I just don't, you know, I don't have an extra micro SD, whatever it is lying around. However, I will say that I deeply, deeply regret not downloading Mario Kart because a game like Mario Kart is, it's one of the only games I'm ever going to play with friends on the switch and it would be super convenient if I could have, say, the Zelda cartridge in the Switch, but then just pop over and play Mario Kart for a minute with my friends and then go back to Zelda when I'm by myself. It's not I will. It's not a big enough deal that I would buy Mario Kart again in order to do it, but I do wish I had, for games like that where I know I'm going to be playing with friends kind of at a moment's notice, I, I would recommend downloading. Otherwise, I personally like the cartridges, but teach their own. John, how do you feel about this? I searched to see if we'd been asked this question before because it sounds familiar, but I couldn't find it. But anyway, um, we are only one or two console generations away from these things not having a physical media port on them. I have never had a plastic disc inside my PS4 at all. I download all my games if I can possibly do it. The only card I have for my Switch is Zelda because I bought the special fancy edition and you had to get a card with that. Like they didn't have a digital one because it came with this big box with a bunch of accessories and doohickeys and stuff like that. Uh, digital downloads they are the way to go i recommend it for everybody do not buy physical media if you can at all help it it does mean that you might have to expand the storage on your system it does mean you have to understand how this affects your ability to transfer games and have save state and what happens when you're on a room and so on and so forth but we are in we are in transition period and i feel like we're at the tail end of the transition period digital only is the future Yep, I'm with you. I uh, The very first thing I did when I got the Switch was buy a 200 gig micro SD card. Once I knew I could do that, uh, I I bought zero cartridges. The only I have one game for Switch on a cartridge, and it's the Mario Rabbids game uh, that I bought on Black Friday because it was on sale. I have yet to play it, but the cartridge has been in my Switch for, since Black Friday <laughs> because, uh, you know, I, we all of our games are downloaded. So what's great is, you know, it kind of avoids Casey's Mario Kart problem. All of your games are always accessible to you. You can just always play whatever you want. You don't have to worry, oh, I left that one at home, or I don't have that one with me right now. There is a real downside, as Casey said, that you can't just 
hand your copy of the game to someone else to play or you or you know like if you don't if if you want to like have multiple switches in your family and you you can't easily like just transfer the games between them um so you know that's that's kind of that's kind of annoying in certain cases um you also can't resell downloads uh, you know back to gamestop or whatever for zero dollars they can resell it for way more than that um (laughs) you know you can't trade with friends like there, there are definite downsides to the way downloads are usually implemented but as somebody who doesn't usually do all those things and who is instead very lazy i love the fact that i can just pick up the switch or turn on the tv with the switch and all the games that we have are just in a menu and you can just pick whatever you want to play and it just starts and a lot of those limitations you mentioned are actually just policy ones. And Nintendo historically has not been the best on the policy. But for example, on PlayStation 4, there's many games that I bought one copy of that I can play on both of my PS4s in the house. My son can play on his account on his PS4 because it's like a sub account of mine or whatever. Like they, they have a way for a lot of games, not all, but a lot of games for you to buy one copy of it and have two people playing it on different PlayStations on different accounts, which is a much better policy than the Nintendo policy, right? So it really is up to... And they could even do reselling and stuff like that if they wanted. So it really is up to the individual company. That's why I say become familiar with what the those the policies related to digital um, downloads on your console and figure out if they're you know if they're an issue. If you never resell them, you probably don't care about that. But if you do want to buy one copy of a game and have multiple people in the house playing it, find out if that's possible, and you might be pleasantly surprised. And by the way, I know I said it myself earlier, but like you know, I don't, I don't buy uh, games on on plastic discs. I prefer digital obviously the digital and the plastic is too this is just like mechanical keyboards another one of those <laughs> non- nonsensical things it's like oh so you like digital games yeah I'll, i get my 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 games on vinyl they're all analog the graphics are way better that way much warmer it's more about the ritual thanks to our sponsors this week mac weldon eero and casper and we'll see you next week now the show is over they didn't even mean to begin Cause it was accidental. accidental Oh, it was accidental. accidental John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter You can follow them At C-A-S-E-Y-L ISS, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, USA Syracuse, it's accidental. We just we just got another switch card in the house, and I, I realized that I had had the Zelda switch cart in my cart slot so long that I forgot where the cart slot was on my switch. <laughs> nice. I, well, we got some dancing game for my daughter. She's going to use it at a birthday party. I'm trying to think how do we end up getting this and not downloading it. But anyway, we have a, a second physical card in the house now, which I'm already regretting because then I have to take out my tiny little Zelda thing and put it somewhere where I don't lose it. I can't wait for them to do the. Uh, I don't know if you've been keeping up with this, but the. Uh, the Nintendo online service that we're all currently enjoying a free trial of or whatever is going to become commercial. And as part of that, there's going to be cloud saves. Thank God. So finally, my all my Zelda progress will be somewhat safer than it is now. I just I fear like that the kids are going to spill a drink on my switch and I'm going to lose like 150 hours of Zelda. Yeah, I'm worried about that for all of our saves, too. Yeah. When, when is that launching? 
It's not not soon, right? Uh, forget uh, September, maybe. I don't know. Ugh. Google for Nintendo Switch Online. You'll see. I, I wasn't paying too much attention to it. I just saw the feature set, but it, it's it, before the end of the year, and I think maybe the fall. And apparently, we're going to be able to play Mario Three multiplayer over the internet. Oh, it's just more NES games. By the way, you'll be able to play more NES games. Surprise. Yeah. We all kind of saw that coming. I think they're giving you a bunch of good ones for free. I think they're giving you like Mario, Mario 3. I figure what they were. Anyway, just go over the story to see details. But anyway, it's cheap. It's like $35 for a seven-person family per year. Uh, and cloud saves. That's all I need to hear. I would, you know, have no idea how much I would play for cloud saves. <laughs> I'm so paranoid about this Switch. <laughs> 